All right. So we are in the midst of a series, basically, that's talking about all, we'll call it all things salvation. You know, uh, we, we originally kind of uh, started out calling it sin, the Savior, and salvation, and we looked at uh, some basic principles. We've looked at some key passages. We looked at the meaning of the word save, and, and uh, I purposely chose that broad topic because I just want to camp out here on Wednesday nights, midweek, for as long as we can, talking about God's amazing grace, all key issues like justification, reconciliation, regeneration. Remember we talked about several months ago John 3 and what it means to be born again. We've looked at James 2, 1 John 3, some key passages. But I started uh, down the road of the wells of salvation a few weeks ago, which is something that I'm building new <clears throat> new slides about from uh, material that I've taught many times through the years, what I used to call key terms in salvation, key salvation terms. But now I've changed it to the wells of salvation, and we're spending a week or two on each one instead of just five minutes in one lecture. So we started out with atonement. We spent two weeks on that. What is the atonement? Who can remember what the meaning of the atonement was? Or how would you define the atonement, toning work of Christ? Somebody? Yeah. Dying on the cross. So, because he is a just God, so he he has to be just, and he's also has to be all a hundred percent merciful. So, in order yep. to do both, he has to he had to pay the penalty on someone, and it was Jesus. No doubt. So yeah, everything you said is spot on. We we want to strive for you know precision in defining terms. And so you can say about any of these terms, remember I've talked about how there are 33 things that happen instantly the moment faith meets the gospel, when a person trusts in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again. All of them have different nuances. They're all focusing on slightly something different, but they all relate to Christ dying on the cross. But when we define atonement, there's one key word that I'm kind of looking for that if this was a seminary class and I was grading your paper, if you didn't have this word in your definition, you'd get it wrong. Who can tell me what that is? I see you're all afraid because you're afraid I'm going to make fun of you if you get it wrong. <laughs> well, just own it. You know, Just know that I'm going to make fun of you if you get it wrong. Lean into it and say something. Hey, Mike, come on in. You haven't missed much. We were just... We, talked about the importance of punctuality and then we kind of got into got right into our lesson so good to have you um, substitute so there are different views on the atonement and we touched on that but the biblical view is the substitutionary atonement that Jesus died yes died on the cross but he died in our place so there are other erroneous views that suggest Jesus died as an example uh, he died as a, for the group, it's called the governmental view, like he died for everybody, but not in the, but no, the, the atonement is that he literally took our place, that it should have been me, it should have been you on the cross, and he, he was our substitute, him for me, remember that phrase, we talked a lot about that from Isaiah 53, him for me, him for me, him for me, so that'll help you remember atonement, just think him for me. 
But then we got into redemption, the, the second, and we got many more terms that we want to talk about. And of course, they all center on the cross. They all center on God's saving work for us, on the shed blood of Christ. All of these have related themes, but they have particular meaning. So who can remember from last time what uh, we mean by redemption, if you could define it succinctly in a, in a word or two? Paid the price. Paid the price. That's good. Is that what you were going to say? Yes. Sometimes people say bought with a price. Uh, uh, same idea, paid the price or bought uh, with a price. Uh, remember we used the illustration last time of the little boy in his boat. He made the boat, but then he had to buy it back when it got lost from the pawn shop. And that's kind of our story. We were created. If you remember, we talked about being created in the image of God and how that came with it certain, you know, certain qualities and characteristics that correlate to the infinite triune God. It doesn't mean that we are God. It just means that we are the crown jewel of creation, that God fashioned us according to a pattern, and that pattern uh, has corresponding elements in the sense that, for example, God is sovereign, we have free will. That's what distinguishes us from every other created thing. So plants don't have free will, oak trees don't have free will, amoeba, cats, dogs, animals, cows, pigs, lambs. But we have free will, which is what renders us capable of redemption. That Because we have free will, we chose uh, to sin, and therefore that image of God in man became corrupted. And in need of what we generally call salvation, um, but in need for our purposes in this term of redemption that we were created in sinless perfection, but with a free will, we sinned, corrupting the human nature and bringing with it a stiff penalty. What is the penalty for sin? Death, death right? And what kind of death? Remember, we talked about in our studies of the atonement, the meaning of death. What is the simplest one-word definition of death in general? Separation. Separation. And we talked about there are five kinds of death in Scripture that relate to mankind. And so when sin entered the world, mankind faced eternal death, spiritual death, that if left unremedied, lasts for eternity. But he also faced physical death. Had Adam and Eve not sinned, they would still be alive today. But they sinned, and it caused physical death to become a reality. And because of the depravity of man and the corruption of sin, over the last 6,000 years, man has become more and more corrupt. It's the reason we no longer live eight, 900 years like Adam and Eve did. We lived, if we're lucky, in fact, by the time of 1,000 years before Christ in the Psalms, Moses, well, this would be Moses, I forgot he wrote Psalm 90, but he talks about, so this we're talking 1,400 years before Christ, he talks about how if you're lucky, you might live 80 years, right? You know, that'd be good, that'd be a blessing, right? So, um, because of the corruption of sin. So, when you say the penalty for sin is death, we need to say more, right? We need to clarify physical death, spiritual death, and if left unremedied, eternal death. That anyone who dies in their sins, and I don't think I have, actually I do. Uh, John 8, Jesus said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. What does that mean? It means you will die and spend eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. And Jesus speaks about that multiple times. You never hear much preaching on that, uh, on hell. 
Uh, it's one of those politically incorrect words. I mean, the churches that want to grow, they don't want to talk about hell, right? They want to talk about, you know, love and grace and mercy and all those things. But if you preach the whole counsel of God, Jesus had a lot to say about hell, didn't he? Uh, one of the passages that, that always comes to my mind when I'm thinking about that is uh, Luke chapter 12. And again, this is not a common sermon text for churches today. But Jesus said in Luke 12, I say to you, my friends, this is verse 4, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Luke 12, uh, 4 and 5. Uh, and Jesus, of course, talked about uh, when he returns, how he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. To the goats he will say, depart from me into the everlasting fire. So hell is not just a, uh, annihilationism or a ceasing to exist. It is uh, a place of torment. So there's a steep penalty because of uh, the sin, you know, sinfulness of mankind. The wages of sin is death, but that word death is loaded with a lot of significance. So redemption then, as uh, Gary and Fred pointed out, means to be bought with a price to, to pay that penalty, that price that's on our head, so that we don't have to pay it. Now we've already talked about atonement in that Jesus took our place, but now we're talking about What's the actual price? And of course, the price, like we talked about Sunday in our Hebrew series, was what? What's the price for sin? Blood. Very good. Blood, right? Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22, there's no remission or no forgiveness of sins. So that's where we left off last time. The price, if I can get there, the price, and we said... That price is the shedding of, uh, of blood. All right, so let's pick up here and look at some more passages that talk about this uh, same thing. By the way, we had a great discussion last week. I'm hoping that you guys will pick up where you left off. We actually turned the video off about five minutes too early because I thought we were done. And then uh, somebody, uh, I think it was Kim, asked a question, and that spurned some more questions. And it was a good discussion. So... Uh, don't hesitate to, to chase rabbits and to ask questions or make comments because uh, that's the way I learn and I think everybody else learns too by uh, kind of dialoguing about these things. So uh, another verse that kind of is parallel to this is Ephesians 1 where Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Redemption. There's that word. We've been redeemed. Uh, he goes on to say in the parallel epistle of Colossians, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now let's talk about this idea here at the first part of that uh, passage. Delivered us from the power of darkness. What's he talking about there? So delivered, you know, rescued, saved um, us from the power of darkness. We know he's talking here about eternal salvation because he references redemption by the blood, 
So the context here is, again, that eternal penalty, that separation from God because of our sin. So delivered us from the power of darkness there. The power of darkness has to be a metonym for Satan and all of the, you know, hell-bound demons. Remember Jesus said the everlasting fire was prepared for the devil and his demons, his angels. Um, so I take power of darkness here uh, as really the opposite of what he says he has conveyed us into by faith. He's talking here to believers, which is the kingdom of the son of his love. So you're contrasting here the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Now what's interesting about this verse, it's one of the few times in the New Testament where kingdom is used for something other than the literal earthly messianic reign of Christ, which is yet future when he comes back. And sometimes I come across people in my you know, realm or uh, network uh, that are you know, pre-tribulational, dispensational, understanding the Bible in its literal grammatical historical sense, and they just, it's like they have this uh, absolute, they are terrified of the word kingdom. And they don't like anybody to ever mention it in any context because this is not the kingdom now. The kingdom is future. It's a future, uh, you know, fulfillment of prophecy that we are not in the kingdom now. And I understand that. Believe me, there are plenty of false teachers out there suggesting this is the kingdom. The church has replaced Israel. We are living in the long-awaited kingdom and it's all being uh, fulfilled spiritually, metaphorically, allegorically, right? So I understand that, and I completely agree with them to reject that notion. But we have to be biblicists first and foremost and let the Bible speak where it speaks. And there is a sense in which the word kingdom is used in the broadest sense to refer to essentially the good guys and the bad guys, God and his agenda and Satan and his agenda. And this is what I've tried to sort of outline many times through the years in some of my stuff, like the spirit of the Antichrist, that there is a cosmic struggle between the eternal creator of the universe and Satan. And it's a battle for this very earth. Satan uh, tried to take over heaven, and he got kicked out along with one-third of the angels, and since then he's been trying to take over this earth as his own. That's why he's called the prince of the power of the air and the prince of, notice, darkness, right? That's why we've been delivered from the power of darkness. And, uh, and as, as you walk through the scriptures, you often see that metaphor of light versus darkness to sort of explain the two sides of the equation. Yeah. That song, Majesty, Kingdom Authority. Yeah, Jack Hayford's song. Mm -hmm. Which side? Is that talking about this kingdom? No, total heresy, total, you know, amillennial, you know. But, I mean, it's a great song. We just need to understand you know, that that although Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords because he is uh, immutable, unchangeable, eternal, eternal, it's not like he can change. We've talked many times about in function, he, his four offices happen in time. So he came as prophet for three and a half years. He is now priest sitting at the right hand of God. He will return as king and judge ultimately judge at the end of the millennium at the great white throne. So, um, so you know, a lot of people, a lot of the songs that we sing, and that's one of them, speak in terms of the kingdom being now. And I don't think that's correct. So I, I think that's not a good message to be getting across. And one of the things I love about Jeff is that, you know, 
he he runs through the grid of scripture the songs that he chooses and every now and then you'll notice we change a a word here or there because it's great song with great biblical truth but it misses you know um it's just like commentators or preachers by the way you should always run everything i say through the grid of scripture you know i'm not perfect don't tell my kids but you know i uh, you know, don't just believe it because I say it. That's a very terrible place to be. I don't want that responsibility. I'm not trying to indoctrinate. I'm trying as best I can to be true to the text, interpret the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical way, tell you what I believe. I'm not up here saying, you know, but then again, what do I know? I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm right, but don't believe me just because I say it. Study it for yourself. And, and then when you study that song, it doesn't measure up. Yeah. Right? To the earth. And he rolls the earth like a roaring. Water. Amen. First Peter, yeah. Does that give him some sort of power here on earth? He absolutely does have power. Yeah. He absolutely. She said, you know, Satan was cast out of heaven. He, or the earth is his, uh, his playground and he has power. Peter says he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Remember, Satan has two goals. We've talked about this before. He wants to keep the lost lost. And the saved defeated. <laughs> and, 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 and by the way, one of the reasons I've grown so passionate through the years for the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel is that a false gospel is one weapon that can accomplish both of his goals. Because if you're preaching a false gospel, the lost can't be saved because hearing comes by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul said the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So if, if the gospel is X and you're preaching X plus one, you're not preaching the gospel. I mean, even in this, you know, common core, I think that that's, makes sense to most of us, right? X plus one does not equal X. So if you're preaching something other than the gospel, you, you're not going to get saved if you believe that. You have to believe the gospel to be saved, not something other than the gospel. But similarly, if you're already saved, but someone's preaching a false gospel... It's going to confuse even believers a lot of times. It's going to make them doubt and wallow around in insecurity and wonder, am I really saved? So I believe there are a lot of people who somewhere in their journey heard and believed the pure and simple gospel message that's so simple a child can understand it. Again, you can state it in ten words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. But yet because of false teaching or influences or all different reasons, they've somewhere gotten messed up in their understanding and now... They think that faith plus works, or faith then works, or faith, and you've got to prove it by your works, and the works become the central theme of their life. And because all of us are imperfect at times, and our works are not always righteous, they then begin to doubt whether they themselves are positionally righteous. Remember how we talked about positional righteousness and practical righteousness? Once you trust Christ, when faith meets the gospel... In that moment, you are declared positionally righteous once for all. Nothing can change that. But because we still have that sin nature and the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, sometimes in practice, we don't have practical righteousness that comports with our positional righteousness. And if you think, because of bad teaching, that somehow your behavior, your deeds, are instrumental or determinative in whether or not you go to heaven, then even though you may be saved, you're going to doubt whether you are. And so, back to your comment, Satan absolutely has power. 
and he wants to keep the lost lost and the saved defeated. He can accomplish both by preaching a false gospel. But this is his kingdom. He, he thinks that he's going to win the battle. Even though he's read the Bible, he should know better, but he just doesn't believe it. You know, he's like a lot of uh, smart intellectual atheists. They know the Bible because they're studious and they know it like they might know Shakespeare or some other literature, but they don't believe it. They haven't believe it to be true. That's where Satan is. So he's he's just out there trying to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what Jesus said. Yeah. But I mean, I've heard that you know he really doesn't have to uh, win over those who aren't saved because he already has them. But as far as the Christians, he's just trying to corrupt them. He knows he can't win them over because they're Christians. Well, so the question is, you know, he doesn't really have to win over unbelievers because they're already kind of on his team. And so, and yet with Christians, he has to defeat them. So, yeah, I think it's a lot more complex than that. And sort, you know, to a certain extent, who am I to try to get inside the mind of Satan? All we can do is try to communicate what the Word of God says about him. But he definitely has on his radar unbelievers, right? 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us Satan is blinding men's hearts to the gospel. So it's not like because they're unbelievers and therefore, you know, part of the, the bad team, we'll call it, right, that Satan just doesn't worry about them. No, he's very much worried about them. He wants to keep the lost lost, right? And he does that by blinding their hearts to the gospel. But he also, as you said, wants to focus on believers to defeat them. I mentioned one way he can defeat them, which of course is to cause them to doubt their salvation and end up you know, just always insecure and wondering and so forth. Um, but there are many ways he can defeat them. He, def- he can make them ineffective and he does it through temptation and sin. You know, When a believer falls into sin, they become sort of shipwrecked on the sidelines and, and less effective and they can also bring shame to Christ. They can bring shame to the, the evangelistic enterprise. Uh, you know, you've heard me say before, there are two reasons why some people have never been saved, right? Uh, I actually give 10 reasons in my book, Top 10 Reasons Some People Are Going to Hell, but at the macro level, there are two reasons some people never get saved. Number one is they've never met a Christian to share the gospel with them. And number two, they've met a Christian. <laughs> You know, and because of the bad testimony of Christians, some people get turned off. I, I remember uh, about four years ago, because it was when Trump had just gotten elected, meeting with an atheist, uh, having dinner in their home. Uh, this was a pretty well-to-do individual, um, and uh, he was a uh, in TV. He was a uh, announcer, not an announcer. He was a commentator. Anchor is the word I'm looking Anchor for CNN. And I won't mention his name, just out of respect for him. But he, he was very bold in telling me, because he knew I was a believer, knew I was, had a ministry, and, and uh, he just said, you know, you Christians this, and you Christians that, and I, you know, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of it. And we talked for three hours that evening, first hour with all of us, and then my wife and his wife kind of went off to tour their a beautiful home, and, and he and I just continued to talk. And he's an example of someone who the Spirit of God's going to, which he's fully capable of doing, is going to have to really break through a lot of baggage there because this guy has seen the worst side of Christians. And, yeah. 
for someone like that, I would tend to think they're looking. Yeah. They're wondering. They're they're wanting to be convinced. Yeah. I think you're right. I think, and believe me, we, you know, I, I was able to, to tell him, look, I understand that there are people like that out there, but I'm not one of them. I tend to agree with you on some of the things that you're talking about, you know, his, his politics and his other views, and, and um, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think that was a divine appointment. The Lord used it, and, and, and who knows? You know, some people plant, some people water, and the Lord provides the increase, but... Uh, we know the Lord's not willing that any should perish and that all come to repentance, contrary to what Calvinism teaches. See, a Calvinist would just say, well, obviously they're not elect. Just, you know, write them off, right? But that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Um, uh, I'm sure that I've told this story probably in here, but maybe not about my friend that was a Calvinist. He's with the Lord now, so he's a dispensationalist now, but he used to be a Calvinist. Um, anyway, he... Uh, he and I went to a conference together in Pennsylvania. He was much older than me, and but he was, I mean, a 12-point Calvinist. And I think I told you we we uh, we went to lunch every day at the same place. And the, the server that helped us was an unbelieving young lady, and very because uh, we engaged her. I engaged her. I left a track every time when I paid the bill, and we talked about why we were in town and talked about the Lord. And, and but you you know she by her own confession was not a believer, but she could sort of just anticipate that that's what she was going to say because she was all dressed in goth and just not, you know, you just could tell she came from a different worldview. And, uh, but anyway, at the end of the week, our last time to have lunch there, and we were headed back, the conference was over. I think we had lunch three or four times that week at that restaurant. And as we're walking out of the parking lot, my friend says to me, well, we gave it our best shot, but obviously she wasn't elect. And I just wanted to punch him, you know. We don't know. We don't know what the Lord's got. That gal, she might have gotten saved the next day by someone sharing Christ with her, and she might be a champion for Christ today that brings millions to the Lord. We don't know what the Lord's going to do. Many people have gotten saved. Look at the thief on the cross, you know. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I think uh, this guy, who knows? Who, who knows what, uh, what the Lord's going to do in his life? And uh, every time I think about him, I pray for him, and Hopefully we'll get the chance to interact again um, and because um, we have mutual friends and we might see him again. But, but yeah, there's this, you know, a reason I kind of wanted to camp out here for just a second is that, first of all, it's an example where in the broadest terms we can understand that those who by faith alone in Christ alone have been adopted back into the family of God, born again, born from above, as Jesus told Nicodemus, now constitute essentially the, the you know residents of God's kingdom. Now the kingdom has not been inaugurated yet, like we've talked a lot about, and it is a literally a future kingdom that has geographic boundaries explicitly detailed in Scripture. It has a temple that's going to be rebuilt on the Temple Mount that has extensive details about the dimensions and architecture of it. There are all kinds of teaching in the Old Testament about life in the kingdom, uh, Christ sitting on the throne, ruling in perfect peace and righteousness and justice. So certainly we're going to be a part of that, but our citizenship is in heaven. Remember, Paul talks about that, that, you know, from which, you know, we should set our mind on things above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, because that's where our citizenship is. And someday Christ is going to come back, and we're going to sort of realize and experience the full inauguration of the kingdom. 
but it's not incorrect to speak in the broadest terms of a kingdom that we are a part of. Uh, any more than it's a it's it's incorrect to say that we're that unbelievers are part of a darkness or you know the uh, the spirit of darkness. Any any more thoughts or questions on that? All right. So then we can go back to Hebrews nine. Again, we've spent the last couple of weeks in Hebrews nine on Sunday mornings, but notice not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. There's that word again. So, as we've discussed on Sundays, the sacrificial system in Israel, the entire Judaistic code, was a shadow, or a copy is the term the writer of Hebrews uses, of things to come. It pointed toward Christ. Uh, unbelievers in the Old Testament days of the law, they did not get saved because they kept those ritualistic shadows and copies of the reality. Every person from Adam forward has to get saved the same way, by faith. But corporately and nationally as a group, they went through the motions and they did these things. And these every time the priest would sacrifice a lamb or a goat or every time on the day of atonement he would go in once a year and shed the, the blood on the altar uh, that prefigured and pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ and then as we read through the Bible in the progress of revelation progress meaning time over time God began to unveil unveil more of it and what do you find out when you get to the time of Christ as he begins his ministry, what does John the Baptist say about him? Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. By the way, not the sin of the elect, but the sin of the world, right? So uh, all of that prefigured Christ. And it did so in, a, in a, just a picture-perfect way when you, really get, when you really study it. In fact, you know, you commented about this early in the first question when you were talking about all the different things. He was justice and his mercy all kind of coalescing at the cross. I don't think you used the word coalescing. You probably used a much smarter, bigger word knowing you. But, uh, but you talked about how the cross, you know, was perfectly just and perfectly gracious. Well, we see similarly all of that prefigured. Like if you go to Leviticus 16, which talks about the Day of Atonement, and they would select two goats, Remember, they would have uh, the goat of propitiation and the goat of expiation or uh, the scapegoat and the sacrificial goat. That's where we get the term scapegoat, by the way. A lot of our English idioms come from the King James Version of the Bible. It's amazing because for so long that was the only book a lot of people had. But so what they would do is they would, one goat. They, they would have these goats, they would select, and then they would draw straws, or, I mean, I think it was cast lots. Literally, draw straws is probably an Americanized version of that. But anyway, they would, they would cast lots, and one of the goats would thereby be chosen to be the one who is sacrificed, killed. And in that sense, he was the goat of propitiation, another one of the words we're going to come to in this Wells of Salvation series. But he would satisfy the wrath of God, pay the penalty 
symbolizing the, the ultimate Lamb of God who would pay the eternal redemption price. But the other goat was called the scapegoat or the goat of expiation, and that's because he was taken out from, ex is a Greek preposition, out from, the camp and way away and let loose to symbolize what? The removal of guilt, right? So both of those were very vivid word pictures. Now, undoubtedly, many people within the Jewish community went through the motions. It was cultural. It was ritualistic to them, and they had no idea what it symbolized because they had not personally expressed faith in Yahweh the way Father Abraham had, right? But but it still, nevertheless, was a, it was a very vivid reminder of the fact, going all the way back to the garden like we talked about last week, with you know, the shed blood that, from which the skins came to cover Adam and Eve's sin, the shed blood from which Abel's sacrifice was made that was more acceptable, and so forth and so on. Uh, so it was a, this vivid picture, and what we see, that's the shadow. What do we see in the reality? The substance, as the writer of Hebrews makes painfully, painstakingly, not painfully, painstakingly clear, crystal clear, that in Christ they all come together. He was both. He was the scapegoat and the goat of, of propitiation. He both satisfied God's wrath and removed the guilt. See, this, these shadows couldn't do that. These priests had to keep coming back again and again and doing the same rituals over and over again. That was the design. But once Christ came, it put an end to sacrifice because he was the once for all uh, sacrifice. That's what this verse tells us. He entered the most holy place once for all. Remember the writer of Hebrews talks about the veil, which was his flesh. So even the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, that was rent in two at the time of Christ's death, when he cried out, it is finished. Even that was a shadow pointing ultimately to the substance of Christ in his flesh. When he was beaten and wounded, goes back to Hebrews or uh, Isaiah 53 and so forth. Um, so again, the key here is eternal redemption. This is not contrary to what a lot of Christian religions teach today. This is not something that we have to do again and again. We can't lose it. If eternal salvation could be lost, it's got the wrong name. Okay, let's just be clear. By definition, eternal salvation cannot be lost. So it's really a moot point. But most people don't think of it as eternal redemption, even though that's plainly what it says. They think of it as redemption in the same sense that the, the shadow, the copy did. It's got to happen again and again. And so they think of eternal salvation, or, or we'll call it heaven and hell, in terms of a contract. They've done something, and as long as they keep their end of the bargain, they're going to get in, but if they fall short, then they need to do it again. How is that different than the sacrificial system? They just keep coming back to the same place. And, of course, what the Bible teaches is that salvation happens at a one-time moment in time. Eternal salvation. It, it, there's a one-time moment, when faith meets the gospel, and in that millisecond, you are justified, declared righteous, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, reconciled to a holy God. Uh, the wrath of God against you is satisfied. You're no longer under judgment. You've passed from death to life. 
You've been born from above, adopted into the family of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and a couple dozen other things that all happen in that instant. And it doesn't mean you're perfect this side of heaven. We still struggle. That's what the whole sanctification process is all about. We're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. We're supposed to walk in the Spirit and not into the flesh. We're supposed to grow in Christ-likeness. Um, but if we sin after having been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, it does not have any bearing on our eternal destiny because that issue is settled. Otherwise, it, it's not eternal. So, you know, I've said many times, Jesus, uh, you know, using the phrase eternal, says, for example, in John 6, 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. He didn't say has the potential for or the prospect of or the possibility of. You have it. So uh, this is a question I'm sure that everyone here knows the answer to. But when do you actually obtain possession of eternal life? When you die? No. When you believe the gospel, right? So eternal life is a present possession, not a future possibility. So that really kind of rings my bell when I think about that because what that reminds me of is, again, this, this notion that the writer of Hebrews has been saying so much about that, look, you live in a, in a world of time, space, and matter, but that's really not your home. Ever since you met Jesus, your home is in heaven. You're just passing through. Your eternal life started the moment you trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation. That's when it started. And how long will it last? Eternity. It just so happens that the first, you know, uh, for me, I was saved when I was six. That's when I trusted Christ and Him alone for salvation. I'm 52, so the first 46 years of it so far have been on earth. If the Lord tarries is coming, and we sure hope not. Maranatha, right? But if He does, and I die, let's say, at the age of 90, I'd be optimistic, right? Uh, then I've got you know, 90 minus 6, 84 years of my eternity were on this old earth. But if you were to look at a timeline of eternity, which is impossible to do, but let's just run with it, that 94 years is a speck, almost indistinguishable, right? So our lives as born-again children of God, like John 1.12 says, are eternal we have new life now while we're on this earth that eternal life that we possess has various qualities and that's why jesus said in john 10 i come that you might have life that is that you may be reborn because you're dead in your trespasses and sins you, you need to be reborn but he went on to say and that more abundantly so unfortunately some believers who have eternal life don't really have much of an abundant life right now. They're not living out the Christ-like joy of, of walking with the Savior. Yeah. Okay. Isn't everybody eternal? And then if you're saved, you have eternal life. But if you're unsaved, you have eternal death. That's right. I mean, everybody is eternal. Right, but life and death are the two operative words, words there. Right. So we, we tend to think of life... Uh, in, in sort of a sense of consciousness, right? That's what we, how we describe life, like psychology and life. But life, biblically, and death are polar opposites. Both have consciousness, but 
you're right, a person who is dead and never trusts Christ, dead spiritually, and never trusts Christ, and then dies physically, their eternity is in a place, they have eternal death, right? And, but a person who trusts Christ and becomes born again, they have eternal life. And that life begins here and now. So it's not so much a matter of eternity. You're right. That's, that's very well said. It's a matter of life and death. Do you want eternal death or do you want eternal life? I wrote a track years ago. I don't even know where it is anymore. But it, it was called Good News. You get to live forever. And you turn the page and, it's, and you get to decide where. <laughs> you know? So you're right, from, a, from our perspective, of con you never lose consciousness. There's no such thing as soul sleep, which some religions teach. That's just not biblical. Uh, we could think of many examples, but uh, most notably for believers, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in Philippians, he talks about how he himself is on the verge of physical death, and he knows that that's going to be better by far because he's going to be with Christ. He never loses consciousness. The minute you breathe your last, you're in the presence of the Lord. How great is that? But he goes on to say, but I know I need to stay here on earth and be with you a little longer and help you. Um, similarly, an unbeliever, and we know this, say, from Luke uh, 16, and the rich man in Lazarus doesn't lose consciousness. Unbelievers are in torment. Remember the, the rich man's so much torment, he said, can you just touch the tip of my tongue? I think it was, Right? Am I remembering that right? Yeah. I'm getting some puzzling looks from some biblical scholars, which usually means that my memory isn't right. But uh, let's look at it real quick. I think so, yeah. I think that's right. So um, let's see. So the rich man dies. He's in torment in Hades. He lifted up his eyes. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. So it was the tip of the finger, not the tip of the tongue. But I mean, where is he going to touch his tongue, Jeff? He's not going to stick it in the back of his mouth. Right. He's going to touch the tip of his tongue. So that was I was biblically drawing an inference there that was true. But we know, it's really no laughing matter, is it? I mean, we know that unbelievers will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So don't ever... Let someone try to tell you that you are, you know, that you cease to exist or, you know, you get annihilated or there's a whole movement today, even among so-called conservative evangelicals, what does conservative mean anymore, uh, that are teaching there is no hell. And that's just, I mean, uh, you know, you're reading a different Bible. Did you have a question first? Yes, okay, yeah. Well, this is probably jumping ahead too much, but I mean, the concept of regeneration, I think, is helpful in the sense that. You know, we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. We're, we're born separate from God. And then once you're regenerated, uh, he's, you've been made alive in Christ. So then you're not going to be made dead. He's not going to separate you again after he's brought you right. into you know, fellowship with him. And he's regenerated you. There's, there's no mention of being made dead again. No, so. it's impossible. Because... Eternal life, by definition, is eternal, right? Um, and so is eternal death. So that's why in our chart on the five deaths, we talked about spiritual death, which then, be, at, if you die in unbelief, becomes eternal death. Eternal means eternal. 
No, no second chance. Hebrews 9.27, we looked at Sunday, it's appointed him in once to die, and after this, the judgment. You can't get to the great white throne and say, uh, changed my mind. It doesn't work that way. So eternal death is eternal. Eternal life is eternal. Spiritual death does not have to be eternal. We're all born spiritually dead, and the gospel is a universal call. Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. And whoever comes to faith in Christ alone for salvation instantly passes from death to life. So go to uh, John 3, famous uh, passage that we're all familiar with. A lot of times we forget that John 3.16, one of the most well-known Bible verses of all time, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but has everlasting life, that that occurs from the words of Christ in the context of the conversation that he's having with Nicodemus. And so, as you pointed out, you're not jumping ahead at all. These, word, these terms all, we're, we are going to spend some more time on regeneration, but we've actually already talked about it some from this very uh, passage. But remember Nicodemus, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, and a uh, you know, wealthy man, we know this, uh, comes to Jesus by night, and uh, he says, uh, you must have come from God, because look at all the things you're doing. No one can do that unless he's from God. Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter when he says, Surely I say to you, unless one is born again, and remember we talked about that word again as the word anothen, which actually means from above. In fact, the only time in English that word has ever been translated again is right here twice in verse 3 and verse 7 in the King James and by extension the New King James, English Bible. It's just, it does not have that nuance anywhere else. But they chose to translate it that way here, as you remember, because of the confusion that Nicodemus had. So if we read it the way Nicodemus would have heard it, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Assuredly I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Well, that was meaningless to Nicodemus. He had never heard of the heavenly birth. In fact, later on in verse 12, Jesus says, If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So contextually, the contrast is clearly between heaven and earth, not between first and second. It's not the number of births that matters. It was the location of the birth. And so uh, anyway, Jesus says to him, unless you're born from above, and Nicodemus is going born from above, what does that mean? How can I go back into my mother's womb a second time? And then Jesus says to him, you know, you, you've got to be born of water, speaking of the physical birth in the womb. And the Spirit. Unless you've experienced both, you're not going to enter the kingdom. And again, here kingdom means the future eternal kingdom. Heaven and heaven and new heaven and new earth. So as we've said many times, and I hope you'll remember this saying and and, and repeat it often when, when the con when the conversation warrants it. If you're born twice, you're only going to die once physically. And sort of an asterisk, some people might not even die once if the rapture happens in their lifetime. But if you're born twice, that's what he's talking about. You've got to be born of water and of the Spirit. But if you're only born once, you're going to die twice. It's just the opposite. If you're only born once physically, 
and you're never born from above by faith alone in Christ alone, then when you die physically, you'll also experience the eternal death. So you've got two deaths waiting you. So if you're born once, you're going to die twice. If you're born twice, you're only going to die once. And that's what Jesus is explaining to him here. But anyway, so you remember the rest of the story. Eventually, we come down to uh, verse 14. And Moses, Jesus says, and Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now watch this. And he who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, you know, it's unbelief ultimately, and I talk about this in my Top Ten Reasons book, that ultimately, it's unbelief is the reason anybody goes to hell, right? They, they need a Savior. They need to receive the free gift of eternal life. They need to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The price has been paid, but they've got to receive the gift. And they do that by faith. If they don't have faith, i.e. unbelief, and they die having never believed in Him. Remember what we said uh, earlier in John 8, if you die you know, in your sins, you know... If you don't believe I am He, you will die in your sins. So, uh, if they die in unbelief, they're condemned. But if you believe, what does He say? You are not condemned. You've, elsewhere, He says you've passed from death to life. I think it's John 5.24. Since I'm right here, let me look at that. Uh, you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. Yeah. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and he shall not come into judgment. Again, you're not condemned. Same thing he said in chapter 3. But has passed from death into life. So, yeah, it's all about regeneration. But it's all about all of these things. Redemption, reconciliation, justification, and so forth. But each of them communicates a, just a powerful truth about God's grace and, and our salvation. Yeah. Well, it also points out the fact for Sally that Satan is not all-powerful because if he were, none of us would ever come to be saved by faith. Absolutely. No, he's not all-powerful. And with a word, he's going to be defeated. You know, First at the Battle of Armageddon, when he's then put in prison, but at the end of the millennium, he gets let out after a thousand-year prison sentence. And at that point, he is once for all banished to the everlasting lake of fire where he's tormented day and night forever and ever. So we don't understand why God in his timetable is giving Satan so much free reign. We could you know, speculate and talk about that from Scripture and other reasons. But all we know is that God knows the timetable and we know the rest of the story. And we know that at some point, it, it's it's going to be too late. So our task in this present age is to fulfill the Great Commission, to spread the gospel, to make disciples, uh, to talk about Jesus, tell people about Jesus. And as many will come during this time of the Gentiles as possible, but at some point, you know, the door is going to close. Kind of like uh, Noah, you know. He's, he was warning people day after day after day, 
The flood's coming. 120 years. Yeah. And what happened? Door was shut. The door was shut. The door. Yeah. It's the same thing. Uh, let's see. Does he use the word door? In the context, Jesus is talking about the nation of Israel during the future tribulation period. But in Matthew 25, in the Olivet Discourse, he says, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, let me just read this real quick and then we'll close. Again, this is not talking about the present age. This is talking about that final seven-year period of Daniel. In fact, Jesus quotes Daniel by name in this context. That's the reason we know that's what he's talking about. But he says, the kingdom of heaven will be like unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps but took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed in these watchfulness parables, I think I talked about this briefly on Sunday in our Q&A. Uh, I think Jim had asked a question about, about this. But these watchfulness parables... Uh, the, you know, they start with the days of Noah, then they go on to the thief, then the faithful and evil servant, then the foolish virgins. And he's just explaining that, for example, in this case, for some people alive during that future tribulation, Christ's return is going to come later than they thought. All right? They took oil, but the bridegroom was delayed. And what happened? They ran out of oil. The previous one makes it clear that some, for some people he's going to come sooner, Right? Who then, verse 45, I'm looking at, who is, who is that faithful and wise servant uh, who, whose master made him ruler over his household? Blessed is that servant whom his, when his master comes will find him so doing. Um, the evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Like, he's not going to be here for a long time. I can eat, drink, be merry. I don't have to get right right now. And what happens? The master shows up. So the first one is, some people think he's going to come sooner. Some people think he's going to come later. But the point is they weren't ready. So the, he comes, and we're skipping down to verse 8. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. The wise said, no, nope, lest there should not be enough for us and you. Rather, go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And watch this. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut terrifying phrase you know not for us because we know whom we have believed and we're confident in our eternal destiny but for those who've never trusted in christ whether the future tribulation generation or someone today listening to this video or or here tonight if you've never trusted christ today's the day of salvation so. you think of john 14 6 too yeah i am the way the truth and the life you the door yep uh, yeah, uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. In fact, in John 10, he talks about being the door, right? right. Yeah. So um, so good. Any other questions? We're not on quite as much of a time crunch tonight because there's no band practice, but uh, anybody have any other thoughts or comments? All right. Redemption. Um, we still got a little more that I wanted to talk about, which I'll uh, touch on next week in terms of the guarantee and the down payment and some other passages that, that bring kind of bring this all uh, together. All right. Last chance, going once, going twice. Okay. Well, thank you, guys. You have a good night, and we'll see you next week.